Inside Outside Innovation is the podcast that brings you the best and the brightest in the world of startups and innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger, founder of InsideOutside.io, a provider of research, events, and consulting services that help innovators and entrepreneurs build better products, launch new ideas, and compete in a world of change and disruption. Each week, we'll give you a front row seat to the latest thinking, tools, tactics, and trends in collaborative innovation. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger. And as always, we have another amazing guest. Today with me is Mike McDermott. He is the co-founder and CEO of FreshBooks. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me. I am so excited to have you on the show here to talk about what it's like to be a founder starting from scratch with an itch and a problem that you had seen in your own world and to be able to build the world's number one cloud accounting software for self-employed professionals. What's that like? Well, like any true story, it's a lot of hard work (laughs) (laughs) and perseverance and, you know, not much glory in between the hard work. Anyhow, we've been at it for a while. I am a founder who did Indeed Scratches on Edge. I was running a small design firm when I accidentally saved over an invoice and said there has to be a better way to do this. Built a simple tool and just for context and background, over 20 million people have used it since we started. We are sort of number two to Intuit QuickBooks in America for small business accounting software. And what we are is a really easy to use product that is built for owners instead of accountants. We can talk about that as it pertains to innovation and doesn't pretend to try and serve every small business, even though we're number two. We, we don't serve restaurants. We don't serve retail. We focus on really simple businesses that have the consistent thing of sending an invoice. And we kind of put the blinders on for a bunch of other segments of the market. And so that's worked out well for us. I think one of the interesting things about what you've built also is it hits to the trend that we're seeing more and more of companies that are being built specifically around software that almost allow anybody and everybody to do things that they couldn't do before. The idea of kind of almost no code software or the ability to spin up, try new ideas, get things done without a lot of infrastructure in that. When you started the business, did you think that you'd become a core tool for how businesses create and build their own businesses? I thought we would be a core tool for some number of people. I, I didn't think we'd have as much success as we'd had, but you know that was my hopes. You know, and it started out I could see the value for running my own design firm. So yes, that part was obvious to me. The question of how to build and scale a company was the whole other set of considerations I hadn't really got into in my career at that point. You started out in I think 2003 or so when you started to build it out. So give us a little bit of insight into those early days. How did you decide, I'm going to take this from kind of an idea or an itch I need to scratch to something more than that? You know, I had a moment of frustration, and that's what caused me to spend about two weeks building a really simple tool for my clients. It was probably another six or eight weeks before we started to realize other people might like this. So the original thing was really just to serve myself and my clients. Uh, And it was a little while before we said, hey, there's, there's a broader application for this thing. And so I think that then set off a series of events of trying to figure out how to go about doing that. So in that process, you took a you know idea, you built it up, you were serving your own need as a designer in that. When did you decide to create a company around it and sell to other folks? And what made you decide like, hey, we're going to go on that particular path rather than the existing designer business kind of path? The excitement, frankly, the, the great unknown is like, how the heck are we going to do this? For most entrepreneurs, if they have figured out how to create something of value or they perceive that there, you start walking around the world 
everything looks like a nail for your hammer. And so I would be like in the back of a cab being like, these folks need it and walking down the street. <laughs> those, folks, you know, so right. it was, it was then a, just a more a function of, well, how do we do that? And how do we do it responsibly? It turns out like, Hey, cab drivers are not a core segment, uh, you know, today we have some starting to use us for reasons I won't go into. I think there was a drive to like bring this thing into the world and get into the hands of as many people as possible. And through that particular process, did you have a team or what was the genesis of how you got it from, again, something that was more grassroots to something that you thought you could get to a place where it scaled and, and it was kind of growing on its own? I built the first version by myself, you know, for my clients and my own purposes. Not long after my co-founder Joe joined me and he kind of took over the software development side and I focused on design and sales and marketing, that kind of thing. Today, this seems like an eternity, but we were kind of like nine months closer to a year you know, incubating this product before we even tried to make it available to anybody. Mm -hmm. And so that was how we got started. And then because we were a bit of a slower build and we ended up moving into my parents' basement for three and a half years to incubate the company, we were building to the team. So we added a third co-founder, a guy named Levi. He came in and did many, many things over the years. And then we started hiring employees who furthered software development and marketing and all these things. It was a bit of a gradual sort of humble beginnings start. Consistent things throughout all of it were as soon as we had something we could show customers, we were very attached at the hip with customers. We always made it easy for them to contact us, whether it was by phone or email, or we'd go out in the world and meet them. And so that cycle brought, we didn't have a lot of revenue at the time, so it brought a lot of energy to us, mm -hmm. but it also gave us a really good understanding of who our market was, who liked us, what else they needed, so we knew in what direction to grow and got good at. And this is a hard thing as a product person. You know, you can imagine building everything under the sun, attaching it to your platform, your baby, however you want to think about it. But there is a real discipline in terms of saying no and not just following your instinct. And so, you know, pretty soon the demands from both customers and the things I had in my head outpaced our ability to deliver them. And then that's where the real art of product management comes in, which is like, okay, you know, what is the most impactful thing we can build next? Because we can't build everything we want to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how do you think about building that in and making sure it's meaningfully enough different from the things that have come before it to give you an edge and a foothold in the market? Hey listeners, I wanted to pause this interview for an exciting new announcement. We are bringing back the Inside Outside Innovation Summit right here in Lincoln, Nebraska. Mark your calendars for October 20th through the 22nd. Tickets are on sale at viosummit.com. We are going to have experts from the world of Disney, Facebook, American Express, Nike. All these folks are coming together to talk about innovation, disruption, startups, and the world that we live in today. Check it out at viosummit.com and we'll see you in October. And you bootstrapped it. And so, you know, looking at, you know, the landscape of startups right now where you hear a startup can go out into the valley and, and raise some venture funds and become an overnight success, so to speak. Maybe that wasn't an option for you or it's very similar to what we see in the Midwest here when we're talking to our startups. It's like, hey, find customers. And that's the quickest, best way to build your business. What are some well, of the things that you experienced in that, you know, deciding to bootstrap it? Raising capital is not success. Yeah. Okay. That is the starting gun going off, right? And however much capital you raise, it's probably a fraction of what you actually needed. And so you'll be raising more. And so the better job you can do of finding customers and funding yourself through you know, your own capital and your own growth, like, please do that, entrepreneurs. That is the path for most people. Not all people, but most people. 
and it should be, and that's how most businesses have been built. Now, we're in an age where if you really do have something that has the ability to scale, there is capital available to you to do that, which is great, and our, our business turned into that. But those earlier years you know, were fundamental to, to building a foundation for future success, and so I don't want anyone confusing those things. So we talk about that a lot. There's this mythology out there that you have to raise capital and, and go venture route to become a successful entrepreneur in that. And I just want to talk a little bit about your experiences of bootstrapping it. And at some point, I think you did go out and raise capital to scale the business and that, but talk about the, the journey through making those decisions and, and how did that come to play? So we did start at bootstrapping it. I mean, we put a little bit of our own money in. We had one angel early kind of put 50 grand in and then like my mom and dad put in like 10 grand or, you know, there's things like that. And, right. and then a lot of perseverance and hard work and keep costs low and just survive. Like I think people underestimate the value of surviving. Full yes. stop. But like surviving matters and you learn a lot and there can be other phases of your business, but survival is a key thing to have in a startup. But then as we progress, there were a series of things to de-risk. First of all, if you flip around and think about like, what does an investor care about? They're trying to de-risk, hey, is there a market for your offering, mm -hmm. right? Because sometimes this sounds great. I think it's great. You think it's great. You built a great product. But like, are people actually going to buy this kind of thing? So they want to de-risk the market. They want to de-risk the product itself. So, hey, is there a market for people to buy it? B, does your product actually satisfy that? And this would be this concept of product market fit you hear bandied about. And I actually kind of like, if you know Dave Belfort, his market product fit, because first it starts with the market, then is the product is the, really the right way to think about it. And then, you know, ideally, again, you're trying to assess a team risk, right? Which is like, hey, is this team going to scale? Do they have that capability? Do I believe they're going to win? Important consideration for an investor. And then it's like, hey, does the model, you know, the combination of the way you get your customers and how much you charge people, does that scale? And all those need to be sorted out to greater degrees, depending on like what stage of the financing cycle you're on and the stage of the development of your business. For me, what we had done is we held off a decade before we brought on any institutional capital, but we had proven there was a market. We had proved that our product was there and people loved it. We kind of actually built a culture and started to build that, had the first couple like senior leaders hired. So we'd proven a lot out by the time, like our first round of institutional capital was $30 million. So for a first time, quote unquote, first time entrepreneur, that's something. But that's because we built the business and scaled it further than most people starting out for like a series A, right? Absolutely. So we worked through de-risking all those things. That was the process. Every entrepreneur has you know a journey of ups and downs. And you look back on the journey and all you hear are about the high points of the journey. Can you talk about some of the times that that you ran into obstacles or things that almost killed fresh books or, or things along the lines that entrepreneurs are probably listening to this and saying, hey, I'm struggling with the same kind of thing. What are some of the struggles that you've had and, and how did you overcome them? I literally wrote a blog post and we'll see if our content team didn't kill it, but it used to get a lot of links for us. Like the seven ways I almost killed fresh books. This is a topic near and dear to my heart. I think in those early days, you know, one of the things I really wanted to do, and I don't know why, but I really wanted to surround myself with great advisors, but there was always a great desire to, you start to trust them because you get lost. Hmm. There are times when you're building a startup and you just, you're lost. You're figuring it out. You're in a labyrinth. Nobody's in that labyrinth but you. And that's the thing that you forget sometimes. So then, you know, people will offer some direction and it's like, oh, great. And for that moment and, you know, the couple hours after that, it's like, well, if I just follow that, everything will be solved. 
but the truth is like nobody understands the labyrinth like you do as like, right. a founder and what have you and and need to get good at kind of internalizing that input but you know rarely actually following it to the letter at least in my experience was like it's a great input it's going to influence my thinking but i'm not going to do what you said <laughs> but it right. may push me to the ultimate solution which is right and so it's an input and i found that very helpful I also think sometimes this notion that I've, I've actually, funnily enough, co-founded another company that is in an interesting part of its development right now. And there's this desire to move really, really fast, right? Like that's the mantra. You got to move fast. I have found over the years, you know, that there are times when there are some things to move fast, but there's some things that take time and you kind of can't push them at an unnatural rate. And something like achieving product market fit, you want to try as many tests and things like that as you can. But, you know, if you pour a bunch of capital on top of something and go faster when you don't have it, you will get into deep trouble. There is a piecing together of like, it's important to actually spend time and not rush certain things. So I would say, hey, moving fast, good. Rushing, less good. I got a few more things on my list. I encourage anyone to check out that blog post if they like seven ways I almost killed FreshBooks. But I could go on. I got lots in this file, but uh, I'll stop there. That's great. Let's change gears a little bit. So I know you also have co-authored a book that's on FreshBooks website called Breaking the Time Barrier. Can you talk a little bit about that book and what are some of the nuggets in there that entrepreneurs might find worthy? I'll expose my mental model, and this is not everybody's, but you know, I believe words matter and words mean things. And so the book I wrote is really for a lot of our target customers. They're largely client service businesses. Think of it as a small business owner who has customers that they work with multiple times. It's not like a retail store where somebody comes through once, there's really no ongoing relationship. This is, hey, I'm going to do a project for you and then another project, you know, maybe like your lawyer or your website designer or something like that. The book is written to help people understand how to price their services and to move away from the billable hour and more towards value-based billing, which says, hey, instead of charging you for the number of hours that I work for you, why don't I first understand what problem you are trying to solve, determine whether or not I can help you solve it. And if I can hang a price tag on me solving that for you, right? right? Which basically involves finding out how big the problem is, how expensive it is, and, you know, offering that up. And so, you know, how does this apply to a startup? Well, I think there's lots of ways. I think ultimately like, Hey, nobody really cares about your technology. They care about the value they can get from using your technology. So never lose sight of that. An entrepreneur is always, you know, to my mind, like always about the customer and understanding the value in the customer's eyes, you know, and then I think also that plays on to things like both product development and pricing. And so in product development, you know, there's people talk about building features. My preferred way to discuss things is about building benefits, mm. right? So it's like, hey, we should be developing things that accentuate the benefits our product offers. And if it's that's time savings, let's do things that help people save time. If it's, you know, revenue generation, let's do things that help with that. If it's performance and it's a piece of technology, like a, some kind of database technology, let's make sure it is, is more performant. And the better we do those things, the more value there will be for an end customer because that's why they're buying us. If you take that concept of value and these kinds of things, then you roll it into like pricing, you can start to frame pricing in terms of a value. Hey, like it costs you $50 a month, but you're going to save 20 hours, right? And it's right. like, oh, I would definitely pay $50 to get 20 hours back. Or in relative value, it's like for less than a cup of coffee a day, you can have this service and right. it'll do this for you. So I think that 
the book is more for small business owners, but if you follow the thread there and you get into like product development and innovation, you know, I think of an entrepreneur as somebody who's going to build something that could scale to like thousands of employees versus, you know, running a small business. I, like, and by the way, there's no judgment in either one of those. I just see them as different. And, right. and so I think the book was more built for owners, but it has some applicable concepts for, for entrepreneurs. Makes sense. And the, and the last topic I want to cover is you've grown Freshbooks from a bootstrap startup to where you're at now, a sizable company. What are some of the core things that are different that now that you're at scale, so to speak, and specifically around how do you keep the company fresh and innovative? We're number two to Intuit QuickBooks and small business accounting software in America. So that's, you know, that's quite something that is, you know, we're, we're proud of that. What makes us different, I think, as much as anything is our culture. It's an intangible that doesn't come through in the financial statements. Like, how does a company respond when challenged with something? Right. I think that is the, the single biggest thing that makes us different. We're, we're sort of customer obsessed, which means we're constantly trying to figure out how to make our products better and, and serve our clients better. And if something does go wrong, we want to be all over it to deliver the best possible experience we can for them. We call it 4E, executing extraordinary experiences every day. I think that's the, the what makes us different part. So how do you maintain that freshness or maintain that innovation? Obviously, as a startup, everything's new. But as you get to the size and scale that you're at, how do you maintain that innovation going forward? What I've come to understand personally is it's a combination of direction and constraints that you afford people. At the end of the day, if you have all the resources in the world and all the time, I don't think you actually get any innovation. If you yeah. have infinite time and infinite resources, unless you happen to be a certain kind of person who is just kind of hell-bent on delivery and execution and getting something out, and by the way, if you are great, you know, in the absence of that, human beings being what they are, it's like you just maybe sit and tinker or something like that and never get something to market. You, you get no real innovation. The, the opposite of that is, hey, we need to get to place Y bounded by constraint X. And I think about it as like, you know, sort of, hey, you need to drive a car as fast as you can on a road, and we'll provide some guardrails for that so you can go really fast. But chances are, given this activity, like your headlights don't give you that much forward visibility, <laughs> but we want you to drive fast. So there's the guardrails, right? And so you're trying to create that condition where people can take chances safely, you know, in an environment where when mistakes happen, you know, people are not sort of dragged through the dirt. These are all the things. This has been great stuff, Mike. I- Appreciate you being on Inside Outside Innovation. If people want to find out more about yourself or about FreshBooks, what's the best way to do that? I would go ahead and check out FreshBooks.com. Mike, thanks so much for being on Inside Outside Innovation. Look forward to keeping in touch with you. And thank you very much again for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. That's it for another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. If you want to learn more about our team, our content, our services, check out InsideOutside.io or follow us on Twitter at the IO Podcast or at Artinger. Until next time, go out and innovate.